Well, please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, where we will continue our study in the gospel, as well as our study in the Sermon on the Plain or Sermon on the Mount that we have been in the midst of. Luke chapter 6. And this morning we'll look at verses 27 to 36. 27 to 36. Last time we looked at the Beatitudes and the woes. Four blessings pronounced upon believers and then four woes or statements of judgment upon those who are lost. And now we get into the heart of the sermon and Jesus gives his ethic of love So we pick it up in verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. This is the word of the living God. Amen. My second favorite novel is Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. And it is very long, but it's totally worth it. (laughs) It is so good. Uh, The way Hugo develops characters is... Uh, is so good. He, there's extremes. Someone is either so good and virtuous or so wicked and evil. And he begins the book by describing one of the most virtuous men, one of the most righteous men, a paragon of virtue, uh, the, the Bishop of Digne. And he spends like a ton of time just talking about this bishop and how selfless he is and he's been the bishop in this, in this town for a long time. And he's virtually uh, given up everything of his. He's given it to other people. He's lived a simple life. Um, and you learn that really he doesn't have much of anything of his own except the only prized possession he has are a gift to him of some silverware and uh, some silver candlesticks. And these are... 
you know, valuable to be sure, but really the only indulgence he has, the only uh, things he has of value. He's given everything else away. So you learn, and you just see him doing good and, and just uh, caring for others, and you just, you, your heart goes out to this man, and you think, he is so good, so good. And then you meet Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean has just been released from prison. He's been in prison for 19 years. Originally, he was in prison for stealing bread, um, but then he tried to escape four times, and each time he tried to escape from prison, it added years onto his prison sentence. And so he serves a, a total of 19 years. He's then released, and he has a, a, a special passport, a yellow passport, that basically uh, reveals to everyone that he's a convict. And so he's been released, and he's finding a, trying to find a place to stay, start a new life, and he's in Digne, and no one will let him stay the night because they see his passport, and they don't want a convict to stay until he meets the bishop of Digne, and, and he welcomes him in. He shows him great hospitality. He, he lets him, he feeds him, he lets him stay the night, and uh, you just see the kindness once again of the bishop. Well, after this great hospitality that's been shown by the bishop, Jean Valjean decides to steal the silverware in the night and flee through the garden. And so he takes the silverware from the bishop, leaves in the night, but he's caught by the gendarmes. And they take him, and it's all over for Jean Valjean. I mean, he has been a convict, now he has a repeat offense, and they take him back to the home of the bishop. And they knock on the door. The door opens, and here's what Victor Hugo writes about this scene. Ah, here you are, he exclaimed, looking at Jean Valjean. I am glad to see you. Well, but how is this? I gave you the candlesticks too, which are of silver like the rest, and for which you can certainly get 200 francs. Why did you not carry them away with your forks and spoons? Jean Valjean opened his eyes wide and stared at the venerable bishop with an expression which no human tongue can render any account of. Monsieur, said the brigadier of gendarmes, so what this man said is true. We came across him. He was walking like a man who was running away. We stopped him to look into the matter. He had this silver. And he told you, interposed the bishop with a smile, that it had been given to him by a kind old fellow of a priest with whom he had passed the night. I see how the matter stands. And you have brought him back here. It is a mistake. In that case, replied the brigadier, we can let him go? Certainly, replied the bishop. The gendarmes released Jean Valjean, who recoiled. Is it true that I am to be released? He said in an almost inarticulate voice, and as though he were talking in his sleep. Yes, thou art released. Dost thou not understand? said one of the gendarmes. My friend, resumed the bishop, before you go, here are the candlesticks. Take them. Jean Valjean was trembling in every limb. He took the two candlesticks mechanically and with a bewildered air. 
Now, said the bishop, go in peace. By the way, when you return, my friend, it is not necessary to pass through the garden. You can always enter and depart through the street door. It is never fastened with anything but a latch, either by day or by night. The bishop drew near to him and said in a low voice, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you, and I withdraw it from black thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. From this point on in the story, Jean Valjean is marked by this event. His soul has been bought, so to speak. He has been a changed man. And from this moment on, he seeks to live a life that would reflect the kindness, the mercy, and the grace and the love that have been shown to him by the bishop. And he takes the candlesticks and the silver and he goes on his way. And the rest of the story, I mean, this is just the beginning of the story. It just walks through the lives of other people. Uh, but it always somehow connects back to Jean Valjean. And of course, the rest of the story is just incredible. But you see the change in this man at that very moment. Christians are to be known for their love. This is throughout the New Testament. And this is because we've been loved in such a profound way by God. The way that we have been shown kindness, love, mercy, and grace from God is to then reflect in the way that we interact with other people. It, it is so profound, it is so life-changing, it is so undeserving that we then go and are changed to live such a life to reflect the love that God has shown to us. We act most like God when we love like God loves and forgive like God forgives. And this morning, as we continue our study in the Sermon on the Mount and the Plain, the Plateau, we now come to Jesus' instructions for his kingdom citizens on how they are to love. And we're calling this the charity of kingdom citizens because charity is an old word that refers to love. Now look at the beginning, though, of this section in verse 27 and who Jesus is addressing. In verse 27, but I say to you who hear, to you who hear. Now you remember he began this sermon speaking to his disciples in verse 20, and then he gave the blessings. These are what characterize a true believer. And so therefore they're in the state of being blessed by God. And then he goes on to warn those who are not God's children of the judgment that is facing them if they're not right with God. And so now he, he kind of comes back to addressing those who are his disciples again, but he does it in a different way, and he addresses them as those who hear. Now, of course, those who, there's many thousands of people listening to him, they're all hearing the sound of what he's saying, but that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, to you who hear, in other words, this is very similar to what Jesus says elsewhere, to him who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, you hear what I'm saying, but do you really hear with spiritual perception and insight? This is another way of saying, to those of you who have been born again, to those of you who have been regenerated by the Spirit of God, and now you perceive spiritual truth as you ought. This is what Paul will speak about in 1 Corinthians 2, 
verse 14, when he says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself judged by no one, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And so Jesus is saying, if you have been regenerated, if you have been given a new heart, if you've been changed by God and you can hear with spiritual perception, you understand the message um, beyond just the verbal uh, exchange, but you truly believe this, you embrace this, you've been changed by this, then this is for you. This is my instruction to you. This is how I want you to live. And so we see now three features of the love of kingdom citizens. Three features of the love of kingdom citizens. Who should you love? How should you love? And why should you love? That's what Jesus is going to tell us. And we're going to see that if really you have been shown this profound love for God that changes you, this is what will characterize your life. Just like Jean Valjean was so changed by the incredible love shown to him, he was a changed man from then on and sought to give his life for the service of others and not for himself. So let's look first at the first feature of the love of kingdom citizens. Who should you love? Who should you love? Verses 27 and 28. Let's read those again. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And notice how he is picking up on the, third, uh, on the final blessing in verse 22. So go back to verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so, they did, so their fathers did to the prophets." And so remember, he did the woes, and so now he's going back to the last blessing because he's speaking to those who are blessed, those who hear, and he's saying, here's how I want you to live. So context is always important. Context is king. It's especially important in this passage because people do a lot of wonky stuff with what Jesus says here because they forget the context in which Jesus is speaking. And so we want to remind ourselves of that time and again. So notice this Uh, how verses 27 and 28 describe what you are commanded to do in four ways, and they describe those to whom you are to perform these actions in four ways. So if you just pluck them out, you see that what are you commanded to do? Well, you're commanded to love, you're commanded to do good, you're commanded to bless, and you're commanded to pray for, okay? So those four. Now, who are you to do those actions towards? Well, here are, are the, the objects of those commands. Uh, you are to do them to your enemies, those who hate you, those who curse you, and those who abuse or disparage you. So, really, Jesus is not talking about multiple kinds of people. He's talking about one uh, group of actions, love, described in a multitude of ways, and one kind of person described in a multitude of ways. Your enemies, and they are defined further by those who hate you, those who curse you, those who abuse you or disparage you. So who is the enemy? Who is your enemy? (laughs) In this context, what does Jesus mean by your enemies? Uh, Charles Quarles, in his uh, 
commentary on the Sermon on the Mount says this. In the context of the Sermon on the Mount, the enemy is not merely an individual with whom the disciple has a personality conflict or a citizen of another country with which he is at war. The enemy is rather the one who persecutes the Christian disciple as an expression of his hatred for the Christian's faith and his God. So if you just pluck the woes out and you ended with verse 22 and 23 where Jesus says, blessed are those who are... Uh, when, you are, when people hate you and exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, and then go to verse 27 and you say, love your enemies, what enemies is he talking about? Those enemies, the enemies who persecute you for your faith. And so those are the specific enemies Jesus has in mind. Now, love for enemies is not a new command that Jesus is giving. Um, this is consistent with the Old Testament law. In Exodus chapter 23, in Exodus chapter 23, verses four and five, we read this. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. So, this is very consistent with the Old Testament law. Hey, you see your enemy, uh, his, his animals, and, and you think, well, I'm just going to not do anything about that. I hate that guy. He's my enemy. You say, no, you don't do that. You don't act that way. You care for him like you would anyone else. Proverbs, uh, which is really applying the law and wisdom, uh, says virtually the, the same thing. In Proverbs chapter 25, verse 21 if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and Yahweh will reward you. So, you are to love your enemies. This is not something new, but something that is very profound and difficult to do. Now, love refers to the language of selection and choice, right? Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. God chose Jacob, rejected Esau. He's calling his followers to choose to love their enemies. He's not saying, you know, work up these feelings, you know, warm feelings for this person. He's saying, no, I want you to act on behalf of this person for their good. Look for ways to do them good. And here's some of the things he'll say to flesh this out more. Don't curse your enemies when they curse you. Bless those who curse you. And this blessing here is like the idea of you want God to bless them. You want God, and just think, you want God to bless them with salvation. You want to see them converted. You want to see them saved. And so your enemy is cursing you. They're persecuting you in some way. And you say, I so want them to be blessed. You know, and I mean, you just think of this in so many ways, you know, someone's just chewing you out for some reason, and he's like, God bless you. <laughs> and uh, it's hard to say that with a, with a true heart, though. Listen to what Romans 12, 14, Paul reflecting back, no doubt on this. He says this, bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. Now notice, Paul is connecting this to the proper context that Jesus is speaking of. Bless those who persecute you, right? So that's the enemy, and that's what Jesus is talking about here. First Peter, Peter does the same thing. First Peter, we studied First Peter, so of course you know this. Um, First Peter 3, verse 9, 
He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Paul suffered greatly to bring the gospel to others. I mean, he describes, uh, he enumerates all of his sufferings in 2 Corinthians 11 and uh, all the things he went through just to get the gospel to people who did not want to hear it, but he knew needed to hear it. And so we are to bless those, even who curse us. And then he says, pray for your enemies. Pray for those who abuse you or disparage you. What do you pray for your enemies? Well, there's a lot of things you could pray, but um, I don't think he means to pray imprecatory psalms for them. <laughs> Though I do think praying imprecatory psalms are legitimate, but I don't think that's what he's saying here. <laughs> um, I, I think he is um, speaking about their, their blessing, their good. Ver- so Jesus does this in Luke 23, verse 34. In Luke 23, verse 34, it says... Jesus is on the cross, and it says, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. So as they are dividing up his possessions, as he's hanging on the cross, he prays for the Father to forgive certain individuals there who are persecuting him. Uh, Peter, follow, or sorry, Stephen follows the same example in Acts chapter 7 as he preaches and then they uh, go to stone him and as he is about to die, verse 60 of chapter 7 says, and falling to his knees, and remember Luke is the same author of Acts, so falling to his knees he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And so we see the author, Luke, record what Jesus says about praying for your enemy, praying for those who abuse you, and then he records Jesus doing that, and he records Stephen doing that in volume two, the book of Acts. Now, I think we can apply this even, you know, even if you don't have someone who is like persecuting you for your faith right now, uh, just someone who you just don't really like. I mean, that's the extreme example. You just work it back a little bit to like, I just don't even like this person. Uh, I don't love them. I don't even like them. Well, begin to pray for them. See what will happen. I put in your iPhone, you know, a daily reminder that goes beep. You know, it's like pray for and just write X, you know, (laughs) because that's how you feel about them. I want to X them. (laughs) It's like, so (laughs) pray for X, you know, and you know. And so if someone checks your phone, they don't see the name there, you know, and and then it just comes up and you just pray for five minutes each day and say, Lord, you know, maybe it's hard the first week, but pray for one month. And then what will happen to your heart after 30 days of praying for X, you know, praying for this person, I would venture to say your heart might change a little bit. It may soften. Your heart may go out to them more and more as you pray for them. And that's exactly what Jesus wants. Who are you to love as a kingdom citizen? Everyone, even your enemies. That's what Jesus is saying. Who do you love? Who do kingdom citizens love? Everyone. They love their enemies. How should you love how should you love? And this is where Jesus really tightens down the screws here. And we see some examples, verses 29 to 31. We see practically what this kind of love should look like in practice. Various interactions with others, specifically those who are against you. And once again, keep the context in mind 
and the context of persecution of Christians. Verse 22 sets that context for us. Uh, Verse 27 as well, your enemies. Here's what one writer says to remind us of this as well. He says, the scope of the text has to do with persecution. And it seems some expositors forget this when they arrive at verses 29 to 30. These are not general injunctions for conduct in life's generic circumstances. They are commands for disciples under duress from those who hate Jesus and them. This is the context that should control interpretation and applications here. So we've got to be careful in this to make sure we remember the context. So look at verses 29 to 31. Verse 29, to one uh, one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs begs from you, or really asks from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. And so here, we see some examples. How to love our enemies. The first one is a very famous one. Striking on the cheek. To to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Now, what is he talking about here? Well, we better start with what he's not talking about. (laughs) Because this gets taken in all kinds of ways. Uh, Jesus is not uh, telling you, to do nothing if someone tries to assault your family, right? Go ahead, kill us. (laughs) Jesus is not against self-defense, per se. He's not condemning anyone who has a concealed carry permit. (laughs) This is not about national ethics either. Jesus is not saying this is the ethic for nations. You know, you bomb us and just go ahead and bomb us again. You know, this is not an ethic for police officers. In fact, John the Baptist when people are asking him, what does repentance look like for us in our situation? He talks to some Roman soldiers and he doesn't say to them, repentance looks like quitting your job. He says, no, repentance looks like not strong arming people, not abusing your authority. And so this is not about national ethics, police ethics. This is about personal ethics. And it's also specifically in the context of persecution. Like Dale Ralph Davis said, this is not a call to be wimps for Jesus. (laughs) Um, And we just remember, if we bring all the scriptures to bear in this, we understand men are to be protectors, right? Males are most manly, (laughs) if we put it that way, when they are protectors of those who are in need. And so that is absolutely the case. Of course you should protect your family. In fact, the law of Moses (laughs) allowed for self-defense, It assumed it. In Exodus chapter 22, verse 2, it says this. If a thief is found breaking in, like to your house, if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. The idea is if he comes at night and he breaks in and you, the implication is the people in the home defend themselves such that this intruder dies, there's no guilt for those who slayed him. Why? Because they're defending themselves. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. When Jesus will later tell his disciples for one of their trips to sell some stuff and buy a sword, why would you do that? to defend yourselves if you need to. So we have to bring all this to bear. Quarles says about this, he says, turning the other cheek does not 
preclude prosecuting those who have harmed someone if the legal action is properly motivated. Victims of violent crime should, should press charges against the one who assaulted them. This is necessarily, uh, this is a necessity for the public good in order to prevent others from being victimized. If someone hurts you, call the police. Hey, Jesus is not against that. In fact, Paul, this is really helpful, even the ordering of what Paul does. When Paul speaks about some of these similar issues in Romans 12, I should go there for a minute. In Romans 12, Paul says in verse 14, bless those who persecute you, Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, we just read that proverb, right? Heaping burning coals on your, on your enemy's head. Um, we don't have time to go into what that is, but, um, but you get the idea. Paul is saying, hey, don't you take your own vengeance. Leave it to God. Entrust it to God. And so Paul is saying, don't take personal vengeance for yourself. Uh, but then what follows chapter 12? And it's a really difficult question. What comes after chapter 12? Chapter 13, right? What is 13 about? Well, he, he says it's about civil government. Uh, verse one, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there's no authority except from God and those who exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear? Of the one who is in authority, then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So we could go on there and read some more. The idea is, Paul is saying, don't you take personal vengeance for wrongs committed against you. But that does not preclude you from seeking uh, the civil government and the civil authorities that God has put in place to see them prosecuted. Uh, if someone uh, does you harm, then Paul's saying, hey, don't you go after them. You go uh, seek out the, the authorities and let them handle it. Now, do we live in a world where there's injustice that takes place in the court levels and it sometimes doesn't get adjudicated as we would like or the, as it should? Absolutely. And read Ecclesiastes for that one because Solomon's going to go, hey, sometimes there's injustice even in the courts and what do you do? Uh, and, and that's what makes us long for the, the kingdom of Messiah. But nevertheless, it is not for us to go out and be vigilantes and seek to get justice for ourselves. He says, no, that's not how we do it. You leave it to the authorities. You bring it to the authorities. So, this is not what Jesus is talking about, seeking to protect yourself, any sort of those things. The Proverbs are against personal vendettas as well. Paul, of course, quotes that. So what is he saying? What is he talking about here? Let's look closer at the text. Notice that Jesus speaks of a, of a strike on the cheek. 
he doesn't use more violent language, which he could have. In Matthew's account, it, G- Jesus first talks about what's called the lex talionis, like the eye for the eye, tooth for the for tooth for a tooth. And it was really a, a, a gracious command in that it was to prevent um, someone from being punished more than they should be. Like, you uh, gouged out my eye, so I'm going to kill your whole nation, right? It's like, that's an over, uh, overreaction. And so it was to be measured, right? And it wasn't to say, actually, that if you actually pluck someone's eye out, that you would have your eye plucked out. It was probably often some kind of remuneration to, to meet that. But the idea was that the punishment fits the crime. And actually, our court systems seek to do that as well, to have a proportionate justice. And so, what in Jesus' context uh, there, he's talking about eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But when he, in Matthew says this, he says the same thing. If someone slaps you on the cheek, so he doesn't, he, he has in his vocabulary, he could have said, if someone gouges out your eye, let them gouge your other eye out. If he meant violent crimes. That's not what he's talking about. He says, if someone slaps you on the cheek. And so he speaks about an act that, yes, would hurt, but it would not likely cause permanent damage. Uh, there's a lot of debate in the commentaries. Actually, not really debate, but just like most all of them say this. Um, a few kind of miss it, but it seems legit because in Matthew, if you look at Matthew, Matthew actually says more detail. He says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, and you think every detail in scripture matters. And so you go, why would he say the right cheek? Because I just picture it for a second. Okay, picture someone standing in front of you and Okay, you're there, right? You're ready to go. And, and you're the aggressor, okay? So you're going to hit them on the right cheek. Let's just say most people are right-hand dominant, right? So you're going to give them, if you really want to hit them, you're going to go right-hand, and you're going to go like this, right? And what side of their cheek are you going to hit? Their left cheek, right? So to hit them with, on the left, on the right cheek, rather, you either have to use your less dominant hand to hit them or slap them, or you backhand them with your dominant hand. And that's the idea, I think, that Jesus is getting at. Someone slaps you, they backhand you on the right cheek, and the idea is it was a disgraceful thing. In fact, there's laws that would like, it was like an aggravated uh, kind of assault in the sense of, of paying more if someone slapped you in this way because of the disgrace that it was. That seems to be what Jesus is getting at here. This slap is not just like someone punching you in the face, but it's a slap in the face that is to mock you, to attack your honor, to attack your dignity. I think it's more direct. I mean, it could involve, uh, it could seriously hurt, I think, as well. It's not quite, I, I want to be careful here, it's not quite like the British, like, take off your gloves and, whoosh, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. But it's similar in the sense that that indicated what would usually follow is a duel, right? Because it's like, you have insulted my honor, and now I have to try and make up for that in some way, and so we're going to duel. So it's not quite that, you know, uh, you know <laughs> British, but uh, it, it's, it's this dishonorable thing. Now, can we prove this beyond just the right cheek thing? Well, I think you can because this is how it's sometimes used in the Old Testament. In 1 Kings chapter 22, in 1 Kings 22, verse 24, you have Micaiah, the, the prophet, and um, Ahab doesn't like to 
to call <laughs> Micaiah because every time Micaiah has something to say, it's not good for Ahab. And so he's like, I, I don't like to call. So he calls in all the false prophets and just tell me what I want to hear. And then the, they're going to go to battle. And so they decide to call in Micaiah anyway. And um, there's this whole thing that goes on. And um, basically when Micaiah eventually tells the truth, we read in, gives the, the word of God, in 1 Kings 22, verse 24, it says, Then Zedekiah, the son of Chenaniah, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, How did the Spirit of Yahweh go from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you go into your inner to an inner chamber to hide yourself. And so he's, he's disgracing Micaiah here as he slaps him. You know, what's, what's really fascinating about this is what did Jesus say in verse 22 and 23? He says, when people hate you, insult you, say all kinds of things about you, and then he says, rejoice in that day for their fathers treated the prophets. Now, Micaiah's a prophet, and here's how he's getting treated. He's getting slapped in the face, and now Jesus is saying, if you get slapped in the face, then you should turn the other cheek also. I mean, this is this is the perfect situation. It is a prophet who is being persecuted just like believers are and in the same way that some believers might be. Uh, Lamentations 3.30 speaks as well of associating a striking on the cheek with an insult. It actually uses the same, that, that term insult and cheek in the same context. So here's the issue. Someone, likely an enemy of Christ, who insults you in some way may include some physical action as well. When someone attacks your reputation, Jesus is saying, don't attack back. You leave it to the Lord. Schreiner, commenting on this, he's a really good New Testament um, commentator. He says, the, the command then should not be interpreted as saying that one should never engage in self-defense to protect oneself from injury or death. And he says the idea is uh, one who's being insulted. Now, Jesus and Paul were both struck on the face and both of them responded without retaliation, but both of them uh, asked why they were struck. You know, they, they defended their, their honor, so to speak. They defended, they, their, their, they asked their questioner, what did I do wrong to receive this? Daryl Box says this about this. He says, in the context of persecution, offering the cheek means continuing to minister at the risk of further persecution, as Paul does in Acts 14 and 16. When Paul, like, he gets killed probably, and, or maybe, he gets maybe raised from the dead, I don't know. Uh, he's like at least almost dead. Um, like Princess Bride, he's almost dead, you know. Uh, and he goes back into the city, and they're like, we just tried to kill this guy, and here he's coming back again. He's offering his cheek again uh, to minister the gospel to them. So we might say it like this. So when you are insulted by another person, Christian love looks like non-retaliation and a continued love toward that person. The Christian does not respond in kind and the Christian does not give up loving them as a result. I'm done. I don't want to get hurt again. No, the Christian goes, here's the other cheek. I will receive the same treatment again in order to show love. They will continue to attempt to love this person with the possibility, even likelihood, that they will be insulted again, that they will continue to receive this mistreatment. And so we might say that love risks continual personal insult. Love risks continual personal insult. We spend the most time on that one because I think it's the most uh, maybe misunderstood. Let's look at the second one, taking your cloak, taking your cloak. He says, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. 
The cloak was the, uh, your outer garment, and the tunic was your inner garment. And it just depended on where you were in the strata of <laughs> economics. I mean, some people, they only had one inner garment or maybe two and then one outer garment, but most likely most people had a few of these. But uh, the issue seems to deal with robbery of some sort here. And the point is similar to the prior one. Don't seek personal revenge in such cases, but continue to be willing to lose more in your pursuit of love for this person. Again, Shriner says, the point is that one must be, not be filled with rage and a spirit of vent, revenge when one is the victim of robbery or has been mistreated. I think again, the, the context is Christians persecuted by those who hate them, seeking to harm Christians. And we might say it like this then, if ministry to others leads to some loss on your part, this should not see, cause you to stop seeking to love others. Again, Bach says, the point is that although one is exposed to the hostile religious opponent, one should continue to be vulnerable to repeated onslaughts without seeking revenge. Then Jesus says, give to those who ask from you. Uh, Give to those, and ESV says begs from you. Um, But beg is probably uh, better translated either as borrow or even better as asks. A A borrow is probably too restrictive um, ask is probably best. It's, it's more broad than that. It's prob- so, so the situation envisioned is not panhandlers, but persecutors, right? So Jesus is not talking about like anyone on the street who walks up to you and asks for money, you must give it to them. Like that is not what Jesus is saying here. Remember the context. And remember the context, not only the immediate context of persecution, but the broader context of the New Testament and Proverbs. Uh, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So there's plenty of instruction in the New Testament about thinking through, should I give this person money or not? And Paul's saying if this person is able but unwilling to work to provide for themselves for their basic needs, then I ought not to help them because this is a way for them to be motivated to work. And so, of course, we bring all those to, to bear on this. Uh, Jesus is not talking about panhandlers here. He's talking about those who are persecuting. And maybe this is the situation that could be envisioned. Of course, it could have a, a court context, but it's also possible that maybe a, there's a time when your enemy finds themselves in a desperate condition and you're tempted to say, let me kick them while they're down. They have a need and they ask you. <laughs> and you, you're like, oh, are you serious? And Jesus is saying, you give to them. You see a need, a legitimate need, you help them. Of course, we do this with, with any. And I think the Bible actually gives us kind of a, an order of operation, so to speak, of emphasis, like provide for your family. If anyone doesn't provide for his family, he's worse than, worse than an unbeliever. Uh, you um, uh, give to the church. You know, Paul talks about that, First, uh, 2 Corinthians 8 to 9. Um, and then even to other believers in need, and you see the New Testament example of how the church was meeting the needs, giving priority to meeting the needs of fellow believers, giving to the poor uh, Christians in Jerusalem during the famine. They weren't just like giving famine relief to everyone. It was to the believers, to the churches. Uh, and it says there was no needs in the church because when there was a need, they would provide for that need to be met within the context of the church. Uh, And then Paul will say things like, uh, let us do good to all men, especially to the household of faith. So there's a priority given to fellow believers. And then after all of those things, 
if you still have the leftover and you still see needs that you can meet, then go for it. But there is a somewhat of a gradation of make sure your family's provided for, church, church people, believers, and then beyond that, the world uh, at large. And Deuteronomy 15, 7 to 11 reiterates this, this giving nature of God's people, that they are to meet the needs of those that they see around them. And so he says, give. Give to the one who asks from you. And then finally, the taking of goods from you. He says, from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Now, this isn't forbidding you from asking uh, your brother uh, in the Lord uh, to return your tools. <laughs> hey, uh, man, I can't ask him because Jesus said, you can't ask for it back. Uh, I, that is not what he's talking about here. They borrow something and, oh, man, I'm just never, I'm never going to lend things out because I'm not allowed to ask for it back and these, this guy never gives it back, you know. <laughs> it's okay, you can ask. <laughs> um, I think here the idea is a willingness to be wronged at times in order to love others. And, and Paul, I think, will later apply this specifically to believers uh, in the context of court in 1 Corinthians 6, 7. He will say, hey, can't you guys settle this within the church? Can't you find some godly men in the church who are uh, wise in these things that can help you mediate between one another instead of taking it before secular courts and dishonoring your testimony? And he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Let me just make a qualification. Paul is actually having a limiting factor here on these lawsuits. It's, it's related to the loss of property and money. Um, and so that, that's the particular kind of lawsuits he's talking about here. And he's saying, hey, if it comes down to it and your brothers, I mean, wouldn't it be better to just lose some of your stuff than to get your pound of flesh, to make sure you get what's your due? Wouldn't that be better? And, and he's applying that specifically to believers there. Jesus here is talking more about uh, uh, enemies outside the church, most likely. But even for that, notice how the believers responded when this sort of thing happened to them in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. It says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on them in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So here's how the early believers saw these things supplied in their lives. And of course, they lived in a, in a context that was way more ramped up on persecution than, than we have. Maybe we're moving that way, but here's how they're responding to Jesus' instructions in their circumstances. And so here are the, the tangible ways. And then he gives a principle that, that really is like an umbrella principle over all these. And we call it the golden rule, of course. Uh, I actually found out this week that uh, the golden rule, I was like, I always thought it was golden because like the principle is golden, right? But I found out that one guy said that the name relates to the accounts claiming that the emperor Alex, uh, Alexander Severus had Matthew seven twelve inscribed in gold on the wall of his throne room. And I was like, oh, you know, that's kind of lame, you know? It's like, but it's still a golden principle though. It's okay. You can still call it that. Um, so he says this, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Here's the overarching principle. Now, this actually, this principle, um, the basic contours of it were in existence. A lot of other 
religions, a lot of other uh, documents before Jesus have this somewhat kind of principle. Most of them are in the negative. Here's an example of one. Sirach 31.15. Judge your neighbor's field. No, sorry, not that one. Uh, uh, Tobith 4.15. What you hate, do not do to others. So, so you could think it's like put in the negative. Jesus is in the positive. Most of them are in the negative. But there is one that's somewhat in the positive. Uh, the other one I just mentioned, judge your neighbor's feelings by your own. And in every matter, be thoughtful. Uh, so the idea behind Jesus' command here is not that he's so innovative in this, but uh, one writer says, much of the material in the sermon is an insightful application of principles of righteousness revealed in the Old Testament. It is not surprising that others observe these principles as well. But Jesus does put it in the positive, and I think, uh, you know, just a practical takeaway of what it is, it's like, have a little brainstorm session about what would, what would you want to be done to you, and then, okay, now go do that to them. And I think the qualification is, like, you don't get to define what's good. <laughs> like, well, uh, you know, sinful self-seeking things. It's like, oh, you know, that's, that's what I want to be done. Now, your, your definition of good is defined by God's word, and you think, what is in my best interest for me? Okay, I need to do that to them, and, and even though they are my enemy. Give thought. This is what Paul says in Romans 12. Give thought to do what is good. That, that's that's Jesus' principle fleshed out further. Give thought. Think about it. How can I bless this person? Because if you wait until the moment when you're with them, you're not going to be brainstorming. You're going to be responding and reacting. So you got to think about this person as you're praying for them once a day. <laughs> it's like, and think, how could I bless this person? How could I do good to them? And Jesus is just summarizing this. Here's how Bach summarizes this whole section. What Jesus is saying, how we love he says this, quote, the point is that love involves not defending one's rights and accepting wrongs committed against one by being willing to forgive with the additional proviso that one is willing to turn around a second time and still offer help, even if that means being abused yet again. Love is available, vulnerable, and subject to repeated abuse. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's what he's getting at. And he tries to flesh it out in a lot of different examples. So who are we to love? Who should kingdom citizens love? Their enemies, all people, including their enemies. How should they love? The golden rule and all these examples. And then why should you love? Why should you love? Here are the reasons. Verses 32 to 36. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. I think he gives three reasons why we should love. This is the first one. Love to show that disciples are different. The disciples are different. He's saying your love shouldn't be just like the world. Like, are you just loving the people who love you back? That's pretty normal. Like the mob does that family. <laughs> it's like, we take care of family, right? Criminals have a code of conduct where they, they are going to care for their own. He's like, if that's your love, that doesn't impress anyone. That doesn't stand out at all. No, disciples are different. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Like, what reward is that to you? You're just reciprocal love? That's not what I'm talking about. And then, 
He even says, for even sinners do the same. And Matthew says, even tax collectors, which is a more specific category to a Jewish audience that, G- that Matthew's writing to, uh, Luke broadens it out to say, hey, like, Matthew's talking about like the quintessential, you know, ultimate sinner, the tax collector. I'm just saying, hey, sinners, this is how they act. They care for their own. Verse 34, if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to others to get back the same amount. Now, Jesus is not saying, uh, ESV it makes it seem kind of like the idea is uh, you're lending and you're expecting them to repay you, maybe with interest or whatever, or just the same amount. It's, it's more the idea that you're lending out to someone because you're expecting in the future for them to do something for you. It's not defined what that thing is, but it's like, hey, when I'm in need, you'll help me out. So it's just the basic principle of reciprocity. Like, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. You know, if you help me now, uh, you know, or if I help you now, then I'm kind of expecting something in return from the future. And, and Jesus is saying, no, that, that's not extraordinary at all. That's how the world works. That's how the world lives. That's not how kingdom citizens love. No, you're not looking to be repaid back from them. You're just loving freely. And that's how, that's how we love, because disciples are different. We're not looking for a pat on the back, a paycheck, or something like that when we show this love. Disciples are different. And this is what we are to be known for. Second, love is to be shown with a motivation for reward. Here's why you love, for the reward. Not from men, but from God. Verse 35, but love your enemies and do good and lend. So he's just like reiterating all the things he said already. Expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. He'll talk more about this reward in verse 38. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So we'll talk about that more next time. I just had to save 37 and 38 because it's like the unbeliever's favorite verse. It's like the only verse they know besides John 3, 16. Judge not, lest you be judged. You know, so we got to talk about that and just like focus on it. <laughs> but so we'll get more on this reward idea later. But he's motivating them saying, hey, listen, don't you look for them to repay you now. God is keeping track. He knows. God will reward you. Your reward will be great. It'll be great. Guess what the Greek word is for great? Great. <laughs> That's what it means. That's what the word means. It means great. It's going to be a great reward. Just trust God, all right? (laughs) And then third, love to be like your Father in heaven. Love to be like your Father in heaven. Here he says, in the middle of verse 35, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. If you love like this, you'll be just like your Father. The idea of, idea of sons of, you're familiar with this, it's to have the nature of someone or something. Remember we learned about Bonerges, sons of thunder, right? These guys are characterized, they have the nature of thunder. <laughs> and so when you act like this, when you love like this, so different from the world, you show who your father is. You show like father, like son. Those who love like this show they've been born again and that God is their father. It's being addressed to those who hear, verse 27. And now he concludes and wraps this little section up by saying this a different way. Those who love like this are those who hear. Those who love like this are those who are sons of the Father. He's not saying do this so you become sons of the Father. He's saying do this to evidence 
your heritage, who you belong to. And then we might ask the question, how does God love? How does God show his love to enemies? Well, he, he shows common grace, not saving grace, but common grace to everyone, to wicked sinners who don't deserve it. He shows this grace to his enemies. James 1, 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. In Matthew's account, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 45, he says this, for he makes his son, the father makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And God just showers kindness, literally, <laughs> upon his enemies. I mean, if you could control the weather and nature for a week, what would you do over your enemies' houses? <laughs> would you shower rain and, and do the same for those who are believers and those who are unbelievers? I dare say we might be tempted to not press the button for rain on them. But here's how God acts. These are his enemies. They've stolen from him. They have uh, rebelled against him. They're in rebellion against him. They hate him. He's sustaining them nevertheless with life and breath and good things like marriage and milkshakes and <laughs> all kinds of good things that this world has that are common grace. <laughs> all these good things to enjoy. Sunrises, sunsets, vacations. I mean, this is how God treats his enemies. And this is just his nature to do it that way. This is who he is. And so we are to imitate this kindness of God to our enemies and the mercy of God as well. Paul says this in Ephesians 5, verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. May we be known like our Father. May we be known as children of our Father, having a love that's so distinctive, so different from the world, that it stands out to others. And we model our Father. You're most like God when you love others as God loves and how God defines it. Well, have you been shown the immense, incredible, life-changing love of God in Christ? He has, you have stolen from God, you've stolen his glory, you've taken uh, his gifts and you've made them idols, and yet he's shown kindness to you nevertheless and given you more than you deserve. He welcomes you through the front door. He says, take the silver also. <laughs> and he changes you. He shows such unexpected love and kindness and mercy. If that has happened to you, you're different. You, you see enemies, it's difficult, but you say, that was me. God showed such love to me. That's how I must love this person, just like God has loved me. May it be so. Lord, thank you for what even the world recognizes as profound love. And yet, we see most clearly demonstrated in your character, your nature, your goodness to the world. And Lord, may, may we evidence that changed life, that changed nature. Lord, as we reflect on your love for us, we are just amazed again that you would love us, sinners, deserving your judgment. When it seemed like it was all over for us, you forgave us, you lavished us with your gifts, and you have set us on a path, Lord, 
not to earn our salvation, but to live out of that salvation that we have and live in, la- in light of the love you've shown to us. So may we be different disciples by our love. In Jesus' name, amen.